All right, you guys, we're going to be in the 20th chapter of Judges. So go ahead and open up your Bible to there, please. Chapter 20. The text for tonight is going to recap the events of chapter 19. So I'm not going to give you like a lot of comments on that right now up front. Um, but let me just remind you of the people that are involved in the narrative in this part of the story. So we have this traveling Levite, a person who was set apart to be a priest in Israel, but he's left the tribe that he was supposed to minister in. Oh, I need to turn that off. Um, the AC, but I'm just going to let it go. I can't do it. So anyways, back to, back to the text. So we've met a traveling Israelite and he's left the land, the area of, um, and the tribe that he's supposed to be ministering in. And he's sojourning now and he's in the territory of, uh, Ephraim and he's been there and he's taken to himself a wife while he's there, but he doesn't love her. And she's referred to as his concubine. In other words, he kind of treats her as if she's like a second-class wife. And they don't get along well. She's not faithful to him. He treats her bad. But he goes to her and he makes things right with her, or he intends to go to her and make things right with her. And the father-in-law kind of keeps him there for a little while. But then he eventually leaves. And when he's leaving and they're going back to his house, he stops on the way in Gibeah because he doesn't want to stop in a in this place called uh, that would eventually be Jerusalem. He didn't want to stop there because it was inhabited by people who weren't Israelites. So he goes to, to Gibeah, which is in Benjamin and there, you know, everything bad happens. The worthless men um, who live in the town, uh, they were going to rape him. And he, because he couldn't find any hospitality, he was, he was going to sleep in the middle of the town square, but another sojourning Ephraimite found him and brought him to his house. And so these worthless men, anyways, they came up to him and they demanded he come out, but he didn't come out. His he, sent, he ended up in the very end sending his wife out, and they um, they harm her, and she's the only one who's harmed at the end at, at the end of the chapter. The Levite cuts her to twelve pieces, and then he mails a single piece to the different tribes of Israel. So that's basically right where we pick up with chapter twenty. So we're disgusting. So we're <laughs> exactly. So we're going to just read 17 verses, so the, almost the first half of the chapter. But the reading of the word of the Lord begins at verse 1 in chapter 20. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin. I and my concubines to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine, and I cut her in pieces and sent her throughout the country of the inheritance of Israel. For they have committed an abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we'll do in Gibeah. We'll go up against it by lot. We'll take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they may, may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the out, outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that, you, that is taken among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows, and give you that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers and the people of Israel. The people of Benjamin came together 
out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword, and all of these were men of war. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray for understanding. Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that we might hear from your word, your voice, that we wouldn't treat this book just like any normal, simple history book, which of course all history that is true is part of your story, but we know that this is your special revelation. So let us have eyes that see and ears that hear as we approach your text tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, there are a number of applications we need to take from this text, but first let's try to go over it and just kind of deal with some of the details that are in it. So first off, we see that this Levite's actions seem to have worked. He's gotten a big response from all of Israel. Who would have thought that sending a body part with probably some explanation, I guess, as well, would have garnered such a large response in a land that, from all intent and purposes up before this point, was headlong into embracing sin and immorality. This finally, this act finally was like the, the line that they couldn't cross over, when they've crossed over so many other lines before. It's a little self-serving, um, though, isn't it, on behalf of the Levite? It's not like he's some pillar of morality, up in this story. It's not like he's the Apostle Paul who can say with a clear conscience, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Not that a person has to be perfect to say that. Not that the Apostle Paul was sinless or anything like that by any means. He needed redemption and forgiveness offered in the blood of Christ, just like every other person who's ever existed too. But the Apostle Paul had a recognition of his sin. And Romans 7, for example, makes that very clear among other passages as well. But in an account like we have here with this Levite in Gibeah, it's a bit shocking as to like how unaware he even is of his own sin, his own behavior and all of this. He literally sees himself as the victim. In verse 5, he points out that he was the intended target of the men at Gibeah, that they meant to kill him, which I mean is true, kind of, perhaps the whole truth, because remember, they actually meant to violate him. They were going to rape him. But then he notes that they just violated his concubine. He failed to love his wife as Christ loves the church before, during, and after this whole, whole ordeal. Remember how he just, I mean, how he treated her beforehand, of course, that's true. But then when it was all said and done, when the woman made it back to the door of the house of the Ephraimite that they were staying in, and she fell upon it, and he was just so callous and heartless to her. He didn't, like, scoop her up and try to bend her or mend her wounds or cry or anything. He was just so hard-hearted towards her. So I pointed out last time that we don't know for sure when this woman died. It certainly wasn't during the abuse of the townsmen because she made it back to the door of the house where the Levite was staying. And then the Levite asked her a question, but she doesn't respond. And so he just loads her up on his horse and he takes her back to their home. And that's where it's, we read that she was cut into pieces and then mailed out. Nowhere in the account do we read of her dying. And that was an interesting detail to be silent on, uh, knowing the character of the Levite. Did he kill her after this, or did he simply like disregard her as worthless after she was abused the whole night? Now, we don't know for certain, but it seems possible, and it especially seems all the more plausible after the section that we read tonight that he actually was the one who killed her because of what verse 5 says. Uh, they meant to kill me. They violated her, 
and she is dead. See, she never actually says anything about her being killed by the worthless fellows in Gibeah. It was just simply, she's dead. Now that it's all over, it's just another part of the story that he's recounting. She's dead. It's just this Levite's dry retelling of the events at hand. He's the victim. He's playing the card, and he's certainly upset that this injustice was, was done to him. Though we don't have any reason to think that he cares about the injustice done to his wife, right? Like he doesn't seem broken up about his wife that was abused the whole night and then now dead. And we know the intent of the men in Gibeah was to let her go even uh, because of what chapter 19 said. They were going to let her go in the morning. And if that's the case, you know, and this Levite is the murderer who is now spinning this whole narrative to force justice to do to him, it's still an example of his own wickedness, even though he's trying to bring about something good out of this evil thing that's happened. And at the end of the day, that is who this person, this Levite, really cares about. It's just himself. He's self-serving. Even now, as we see this corrective being sought out for the evil that was done, which seeking out this corrective is a good thing, but the whole event is shrouded in disgrace and transgression and evil motives. And that is the reality of many things that happen in this fallen world that we live in, even until today. It's sometimes hard to know the details and motives of events and intentions of people that are involved in different stories, whether it's on a global scale, like things happening in Afghanistan right now, and people and we pull out and we leave all of our stuff there, like and the workings behind that and who's who's gaining, who's losing. It's impossible for us in some of these types of situations that happen in this world to know all of the details, even when things are something seem good and something seem bad. And sometimes our only comfort as pilgrims in this in this world is to know that despite all this stuff that we don't know and can't understand all this the fine details in, is to know that we know a God who does know, and a God who is in control over all of them, that He's working all things according to the counsel of His will, Ephesians one eleven. That he's doing what he pleases to do in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all deeps, Psalm 135.6. That the hearts of men, even men who have power, are like a stream of water in the heart of the, the Lord. He, and he turns it wherever he wills, Proverbs 21.1. Things in this world will often be perceived by us as falling apart, even when something good and right and corrective seems to be happening. There are often details which aren't super clear to us. But we have hope that the living God and peace because of that, peace-inducing understanding because we know that God is sovereign and the events that happen in this world are all part of his plan for his glory, which also entails then good for us who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8:28. Even in this situation here, in which sin led to more sin and more sin led to unspeakable sin, we know that God was working in and preserving these people for the sake of his covenant promises to eventually bring the Messiah through them. I mean, it would have been right for God, obviously, at this point to just unleash his wrath upon this whole nation at any point in this story of Judges. And he would have been right for him to do that. But he never did that for the sake of his covenant promises and the reality that he, in his purposes, chose to bring the Messiah through this people. Even though there isn't a single mention of the Lord in chapter 19, uh, the ESV has verse 18 saying the house of the Lord, but the Septuagint says that 
what's happening in chapter back chapter 19 if you remember um the levite he's getting the concubine and chapter 18 says that they're going to go to the house of the lord but the septuagint the greek translation of the old testament actually says that they were going to his house and that makes more sense like that i think that's a mistranslation in um our modern translation because it seems if you it seems more he seems more intent on going to his home because that's where he takes her after the whole event in gibeah they don't go to the house of the lord in Shiloh. So anyways, there's no mention of the Lord in chapter 19, but we know the Lord is still working there. Even back to chapter 18, there's only a mention of the Lord when the Levite offered a false prophecy in his name, and then at the end of the chapter to say that God was at Shiloh, showing a separation between God and his people. And then in chapter 20, even with a turn to righteous acts, a turn to righteous justice, there is still no seeking of the Lord through the first 17 verses, with the exception of verse 1, in which we read that they assembled before the Lord. And, and regardless of all that, regardless of the fact that the Lord, his, his self, his covenant name, hasn't really been mentioned in three chapters, we know that he is still working and that he's accomplishing his purposes through this because he is sovereign and what the, t- the totality of Scripture tells us as well, too. And just because the majority of people involved in any narrative don't seem to or care for to acknowledge God, it doesn't mean that God isn't absolutely sovereign and in control of all things. And there will be application we can take from this here in just a moment, but let's first consider, consider the details of this just a little bit more. Uh, the whole way this Levite has spun the events, everything that's happened, has gathered the attention of a big portion of Israel. All the tribes, minus Benjamin presumably, have gathered for a meeting. And for the longest time now in Judges, we've been reading that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and that there was no king in Israel. And we'll read that refrain again at the very end of this book, at the end of chapter 21. But twice in our section here in chapter 20, we read that Israel is assembled as one man, verse 1 and verse 11. And there are 400,000 men who are able to draw the sword, men who are ready for military action, soldiers have been provided by all the tribes of people, but they are one. And they haven't been that. They've all been doing their own thing for the longest time, for the better half of, you know, 300 years. And here, this tragic event has them all coming together, assembled as one man. They're not going to just let this transgression go unpunished. It's too wicked, even for Israel, in this really base condition that they're in. And so in verses 8 to 11, they devise a plan to send out the people. It's not going to just be all 400,000 against Gibeah and the people of the Benjamites. They break them down into um, to a percentage of each tribe and that of the larger number. That was 8 to 11. But before marching out, they extend grace to the tribe of Benjamin. They give them an opportunity to repent and to believe and to give up the worthless fellows from Gibeah. And so doing so would, quote, purge the evil from Israel, verse 13. But they don't listen. They reject this olive branch, and the rest of the section details the army of Benjamin. And so we read some things that, like they have an impressive army as well. They have 26,000 men just from them. Then from the town of Gibeah, there's 700 men. And then total in Benjamin, there's 700 men who are left-handed and who are skilled in war, which is a a possible advantage for them because they're left-handed. Not many people are left-handed. And they were skilled left-handed fighters being able to throw a stone at a hare and hit it every time. So that most likely was a source of pride for them that could also lead to their downfall. Uh, Jeremiah 17.5 reads, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Whatever the case, 
the tribe of Benjamin likes their odds with 26,000 men versus 400,000 men. And our section ends on the precipice of battle. And we'll look at that battle the next time. But there's a number of different applications for us in the text to consider. So the first thing that comes to mind in reflecting on this text is that sin should shock us. Sin should absolutely shock us. We shouldn't be so comfortable with the sin in our lives that is number one. And then number two, we shouldn't be comfortable with the sin that exists in our cultures as well. So we should not be comfortable with the, the societal sins that we live in and then also our own individual personal sins. Sin should shock, shock us. It's not, it has done that here in our texts, hasn't it? It's done it for a wicked and rebellious Israel even, but look what it took. A woman had to have been abused first and then chopped into pieces and mailed out to the different tribes for sin to shock Israel. Why didn't it happen before that? Why weren't they shocked before that? Remember the Ephraimite who was living at Gibeah, he knew that the Levite shouldn't stay in the courtyard. And so he had them come into his house. He knew of the kind of sins that could go on at Gibeah. But apparently he's the only one, or at least he's the only one that we read caring about it. They just all accepted it. It was not a big deal to the people in the town. If the Levite himself was aware of the sin in his life, it could have meant that he never found himself in the situation even. If he had a wife that he loved and cherished and cared for like Christ loves the church, if he would have just stayed in Ephraim and been faithful and, and served God there according to the word of the Lord, it doesn't seem like he would have found himself here in Gibeah. But this is the problem when sin doesn't shock us, when it becomes normal to us. The consequence of sin at that point could come upon us like a thief in the night. But the problem is that we have left the door open with all the lights on as well. Because we were just so accustomed to it. The normalization of wickedness can dull our senses. It makes sin to lose its shock. And when, we, when it does that, we are position, positioning ourselves for correction from God. Correction for one who is his son or daughter, judgment and curse for one who is his enemy. And all sin is serious. Remember what James says? Uh, whoever keeps the whole law, which is nobody, right? James is speaking in hyperbole. Whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one part of it is guilty of all. In verse two, or chapter 217. And in reality, thinking that you're okay like just because this is a little sin, and you're staying away from the bigger sins, is really only making it so that you'll easily give yourself over to the big sins in the future. And we know how serious sin is as well, because of the great cost that was had in having victory over sin. You know, in order for any one of us to have been saved, to have been reconciled to God, and to have our sins forgiven, it required a plan that none of us could ever dream to think of ourselves. Now, the blood of bulls and goats was never enough to save one, save anyone from their sins. It always pointed to a greater sacrifice. We can't work harder. We can't just work a little harder to be forgiven. We are mere beggars who deserve no pity, yet God in his kindness had pity on us. He did what we wouldn't even think to ask, to come in the flesh, to be born under the law, but apart from Adam's curse, then live a holy life without ever once sinning only to be betrayed, and then to die, and then to be disgraced in our place, and then to rise since death couldn't hold him, and so that all united him in faith would also rise with him as well. And we should know how sin is serious, all sin, because it required the death 
of God, the Son of God, for us to be saved. That tells us how serious all sin is. So sin should shock us, but also it shouldn't surprise us. We should be so sensitive, or we should not be so sensitive or insensitive to the offense of sin and the holiness of God that it should shock us. We want to be sensitive to sin. We want, we would, we hope, I hope you all want for sin to shock you because you see the dangers that can happen when sin doesn't shock you. But at the same time, and, and we shouldn't take any part in it. That, and that'll, that'll mean not doing certain things so that our conscience doesn't become numb to the offense of sin. But at the same time, we shouldn't be surprised by it. We need to know the world that we live in. To be shocked by sin in such a way that your conscience is sensitive to it because you've been pursuing holiness doesn't mean that you must be like dumbfounded and surprised about sin. The opposite is actually true. Because if you're doing all the kinds of things that the New Testament says a Christian should do, which is like not normalizing sin, but you know, renewing your mind and offering your body as spiritual worship, Romans 12, 1 and 2, if you're clothing yourself with the Lord so that you do not gratify the desires of the flesh, Romans 13, 14. If you're focused on seeking first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6. If you're thinking about the things that are admirable, trustworthy, excellent, true, and honest, Philippians 4. Then sin should shock you. But you'll also know the depths of your own sin. So that will help you to think rightly about the sin of our culture in such a way that it won't surprise you when you hear about sinful things and wicked things happening. And also because if you're doing those positive actions towards holiness, you'll certainly be in the Word. You'll certainly be in the Bible because that's part of doing all those things that I just mentioned really briefly from the New Testament. You'll be in the Word, and the Word of God records all kinds of depravity so that no saint who is heavenly minded will be surprised when people act in accord with their fallen nature. What really becomes surprising to us when you're not shocked by sin and when you're pursuing Christ and holiness and you're fighting against the normalization of sin in your life because it's hard, what's really surprising is when you see someone, especially someone who doesn't know the Lord, when you see them do what's right, when they have an opportunity to do what's wrong. When the providential kindness of God is on display in the life of others and yet they don't even acknowledge God in their life. Like how the Apostle Paul talks about the light of nature and the work of the law being written on the hearts of the Gentiles. That when they do the law, it's a testimony to um, them having a conscience, them being made in the image of God in Romans 2. So that that should be surprising to us. And, and when we do see that happen, when we see people who even don't want to praise the Lord when they do the right thing, that should give us reason to praise God and to thank God for the way that he has made all people in his image. But sin should not... Be normal to us. Sin should shock us. At the same time, we shouldn't be surprised when we see sin because of the world that we live in. Secondly, and this is related, because if sin is going to shock us and it won't be normal to us because we're pursuing holiness, then we need to learn to put sin to death in our lives. We need to kill sin, as it were. We need to mortify the flesh, is how it says in the King James Version. Or as John Owen famously put it, be killing sin before sin kills you. Every person is going to have to deal with sin in their life. Every person that has ever existed has inherited guilt from Adam. But the difference for Christians in comparison to those who aren't, not you, is that we do more than just simply deal with sin, which if you're just dealing with sin, I mean, that could lead to embracing it and enjoying it, right? Which is what most people, people who don't know the Lord, people who don't want to live their life for God's glory, that's, what they, that's how they deal with sin. They embrace it. They enjoy it. 
Uh, even if it's, you know, harmful to other people around them, it doesn't matter. That's how they deal with sin. But Christians, we contend with sin. We struggle against it. We seek to put it to death in our lives so that it doesn't kill us. And quite literally, it was too late for the characters in our story here in Judges, right? Sin was surely at the point of killing them. The sin of the Levite had led to the point of the endangerment of his own life, and he would have died, most likely, or would have wished he was dead after that night of abuse, if he didn't let his wife stand in his place and die in his stead. But the upswelling of sin, unchecked here, actually got the nation of Israel to a right frame of mind, in this regard at least. We, again, we read at verse 3 that the, the people of Israel were wanting to know about the evil that took place. They called it evil. They were able to see this was evil. They weren't able to see all of their um, worship of the false gods, the Canaanite gods as evil. They, didn't, they missed all that. They missed the evilness of their syncretism and, and merging their true religion with the false religion of the surrounding nations. That, to them, they didn't see as evil. This, though, they finally saw as evil, which we thank the Lord for. And the Levite affirms that the act was an abomination and outrage. And of course, he's suspect in his own character, but that was verse 7. Uh, the people of Israel with, had with a desire for action against the sin in verse 8, and then they go to see if they can make it right with Benjamin by demanding it, just by demanding just the guilty party be, be put forward so they can, quote, purge the evil out of Israel, verse 13. And that is a good picture of what it looks like on a large scale to be killing sin. Israel here isn't looking to destroy all of Benjamin, not at first at least. They're wanting to deal with the specific problem and work towards justice. They're only looking to put to death the worthless fellows in Gibeah, the, the people who were cool with raping a guy or a girl for the whole night. And, and at the same time, when we're looking to put sin to death in ourselves, it doesn't mean like ending our whole lives. Although there is a sense in which when we first become a Christian, we die to ourselves. Right? The Apostle Paul says in Galatians, For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So there's that sense, that initial dying to self, dying to all of your sinful desires. But even as a Christian, when you're trying to put sin to death, the sin that remains, it's not you don't, you don't have to like, you know, end your whole life or something crazy like that. That's too drastic. That's not what's required. What's required is going after the specific sin and no longer indulging it, no longer ignoring it. And the Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans 8, 13. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So it's not even something that you're properly doing yourself, right? It's not in your own power, right? That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. It's by the strength supplied with the Spirit that God has given to you. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's not something that we do in our own power, our own strength, purging that specific thing, the things which lead to it or contribute to it out of your life is something that is dependent upon the Spirit. And what is leading to the sin in your life, it may be different in each one of our lives. Like There may be some things that are not a vice for me, but maybe are a vice for you, or they are something that's leading you to sin, but maybe it wouldn't lead Terry or Valerie into sin. It could all be different. There's, there's a whole lot of variance among us. Um, among people and how we sin, but there are different maturity levels that might, for example, allow for one person to have internet, internet access and another one to not have it for a long time. But this is just part of what it means to be a Christian, that you're thinking of these things even. 
And granted, um, the all sin is common to mankind. So there's different kinds of it. Ultimately, it all comes back, back to a normal heart issue. But we just have to take into consideration that like what might be a sin for something that or is a temptation that leads to sin for Carly might be different than for Adam. But you still have to understand that you have to approach the topic with wisdom and depend upon the spirit to put it to death and to, to try to get rid of it uh, by the power of the spirit that's in you. And that requires wisdom on your part to know what things especially tempt you and lead you to sin, which, by the way, also includes you not doing the good thing that you know that you're supposed to do. Right. That's also sin. When you're also so you're, you sin when you transgress God's law, when you break God's law, when you do something that is considered lawlessness, but then you also are sinning when you don't do the good thing that you know that you should do as well. And so it takes wisdom to know what things are tempting you and leading you to sin so that you might put, uh, put them to death and get rid of those things. But whatever it is, remember, you're not alone in figuring out wisdom. You simply need to be humble enough to ask help from others. It's part of the means of grace that the ecclesia, the, the church community, uh, is supposed to provide, in which we exhort, encourage, and if need be, even rebuke each other in the process of pursuing holiness and putting sin to death. And you guys, most of you are you know, middle school, high school, so your parents would, of course, be a, a level that you could seek maturity from and try to help you see what things are causing you to sin, what things are, not, are causing you to not put the Lord first. But you have to be humble to do that. That's a grace from the Lord as well, too, because it's, it's not easy to do that. But then also on top of it, the church community should be with the church, prioritizing the church. And that's the third thing, the third application from the passage. It's important to listen to a rebuke and take correction, and especially joyfully. It's a mark of wisdom and maturity to do so. How do you know someone is a fool even? If they never heed correction. They never look to be put on a straight path. And we'll see something that's kind of surprising here in that regard. The Levite himself is looking for counsel and advice. Verse 7, but again, his motive is suspect. He wasn't asking for counsel and advice about, hey, should I go back to where I'm supposed to be in Israel, where I'm supposed to serve the Lord? It wasn't that. It was like, what should we do about this great crime, that is, this great offense that's happened to me? He's just looking out for himself. But it's later on in our text that we see this principle of listening to rebuke and taking correction in action. It's verse 12 and 13. We see the gathered tribes of Benjamin um, trying to make right this sin, to make payment for what has happened. But they won't listen, or we see the gathered tribes trying to make Benjamin make things right by having him um, offer up the people of Gibeah. But they won't listen to their rebuke, and they don't take the correction. And in doing so, they show themselves to be what the Bible actually calls stupid. That's what the Word of God calls such actions. Uh, Proverbs 9.7.9, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. So whoever corrects a scoffer, this is Proverbs, excuse that was Proverbs 12.11. Proverbs 9, 7 through 9 says this, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or, or he'll hate you. So in other words, don't reprove, don't rebuke and try to offer correction to the type of person who can't take it. Because you also have to be a person, not only should you give it, but you also have to be the right type of person who can take it as well too. But, because then he goes on to say, Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. So there's two kinds of people, right? There are people who you can't correct because they're so, they're so caught in their sin that they just can't take a correction. The Bible calls them fools and stupid. And then there are people who, for the sake of the, glorify, the, the glory of the Lord, 
will take a rebuke, will take a correction because they desire to be holy, because they desire to glorify the Lord with their lives. Now, of course, there's a right way and a wrong way to go about this. Galatians reminds us that we should correct someone with a spirit of gentleness in order to restore them, right? The goal of correcting someone isn't to like just boast about how wrong they are, how dumb they are, but it's to remind them of the riches of Christ's grace. And we should use scripture in doing it too, right? Scripture is God's word. And remember what 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says, that all scripture is breathed out by God, is theonosos, and is profitable for doctrine, for correction and reproof, and then training in righteousness. So the word of God is good to correct us and reproof us, to put us on a straight way. But part of the problem that we have in the church today is that everyone is just so sensitive. And everyone is, is just simply turned off to correction. And I admit the church is, is guilty in fostering a, that part of a community too. But it is a loving act when a brother or sister offers you correction. And yes, this would also mean if a parent does it to you as well, or if a child has to do it to a parent, that would even be a loving act as well then too. It's loving your neighbor when that happens. When someone seeks to rebuke you and correct you and put you on a straight path. And you should be careful, of course. You don't want there to be a log in your own eye um, when you're trying to remove the speck out of your brothers. But that fact shouldn't, the fact that there is, that you're still a sinner, and even though they sin, that shouldn't be a reason for you to not confront someone in, about the sin that they're, they're committing. It shouldn't paralyze you to offer correction or to receive correction. Listen to Spurgeon here from a sermon entitled All Sufficiency Magnified. He says, How many times are you thrown in such a position that you have an excellent opportunity for rebuking sin or for teaching holiness, and how seldom do you accomplish it? So this was a problem 200 years ago for Charles Spurgeon even. And then he says, An old author named Stuckley, writing upon this subject, said, There were some professed Christians who were not so good as Balaam's ass. For Balaam's ass once rebuked the mad prophet for his sin. But there were some Christians who never rebuked anyone all their, live lo their lives long. They let sin go on under their very eyes, and yet they did not point to it. And they saw sinners dropping into hell, and they stretched not out their hands to pluck them from the brands uh, from the burning. They walked in the midst of the blind, but they would not lead them. They stood in the midst of the deaf, but they would not fear for them. They were where misery was rife, but their mercy would not work upon their misery. They were sent to be saviors of men, but by their negligence they became men's destroyers. Am I my brother's keeper, was the language of Cain. Cain hath many children, even at this day. You are your brother's keeper. If you have grace in your heart, you're called to do good to others. The good to others that he means to do is to, when you see someone that you love in sin, to ought to correct them. And then when, if you're the one, if you're on the receiving side of it, you know, you take that correction as a loving act from somebody else as well, too. It's loving to offer rebuke and it's wise to receive it. That's why James says in James 5, 19 to 20, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Not that you're the one who actually saves him, but you are the means by which God humbles a person so that they turn from their sin and look back to Christ. We need that. I need that. If I'm in my sin, if I'm in my flesh, I need that from you all. It's a loving thing to do it, and it would be a wise thing for me to receive it, and vice versa as well, too. The tribe of Benjamin couldn't see this, though. It's going to lead to their near destruction. Think of it in our lives, okay? Are we shocked by sin? 
that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, we're not shocked by sin. We live in probably one of the most sexually perverse and disgraced societies that this world has seen in a very, very long time, where it's just so easily accessible and it's just so normal. I mean, for a long time now, marketers have known that, like, quote unquote, sex sells. And so they try, so they, so they try to entice profits by, uh, you know, almost naked men and women to sell their items. We just, and we're just not shocked by sin as a culture. But let's think about ourselves. We can seek to be shocked by it. And we can seek to put sin to death and be holy. And are we willing to help others in that and to be helped ourselves when we have the opportunity to do so? We also, thankfully, have a greater testimony in this account than this account here in Judges, though. We're reminded of the gospel in Judges. The sin in Gibeah, the sin of of Benjamin was great, and it demanded a great response. 400,000 men showed up. But Jesus did something greater. He, by himself, in accord with the covenant of redemption, in cooperation with God the Father and God the Spirit, Jesus comes to defeat an enemy even greater than Benjamin. He comes to defeat the penalty of sin for all the elect and the curse of it that was put on creation in general. Jesus goes to war, as it were, with the sins of everyone who was chosen in Christ. Uh, from, from Adam all the way to present day and beyond until Jesus comes again and all the elect have been saved. And Jesus didn't just provide a temporary correction in his act. What we'll see here in, in, with Benjamin in the next coming weeks is that this is a, a temporary correction. They're gonna, they're, by again, by the end of the chapter, it's everyone did right in his own eyes. But the victory that Christ Jesus completed for us, it's an eternal victory. These people here aren't, don't have eternal peace after this encounter, but for us in Christ, we have the hope and the promise that heaven awaits us. And it's sure for us because Christ himself has risen. He secured it for us. He's preparing a place for us there now. It's an eternal correction that our Lord has accomplished for us. So praise him, trust him, because he is kind, he's reasonable, and he's altogether holy. And by grace, we are on his side. So let's pray. Holy God, we know that we still have sin in our life, um, especially, you know, if some of us here may not be saved. And then that would mean, of course, that their lives are totally uh and veiled in sin. But even for those of us who do know the grace, the sweet love and mercy that comes in Christ, we still have sin that remains. So we pray for strength, Holy Spirit, to put sin to death. And we ask that you help us to be shocked to sin, all of us, Lord, that we would not be satisfied with having our lives be content uh, with such atrocities that it would take the Son of God to die on the cross so that we could be forgiven for them. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to be willing to give a rebuke, a corrective to someone when we have that opportunity, when when we're in a place of maturity to be able to do so, and also that you would cause us to joyfully uh, receive a rebuke from somebody else, knowing that such things happen out of love for neighbor and for your glory's sake. Please, Lord, help us to look to you to be totally satisfied in you. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, any questions or anything? No, no?